This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Wake up. Time to die. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a podcast where we talk about film series one film at a time. I'm your host, James Hamrick, and with me is my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on, man? Hi. I'm okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had I had a really, really crazy bad cold, like, yesterday and the day before. Um, so I'm going to try <laughs> and do this, and I hope my voice holds out, and I hope I don't cough and sniffle too much or if i do i hope i can cut it out these last two episodes have been plagued by a lot of some we had so many different technical difficulties going on with our final uh, maze runner episode and here we had a, a guest who we really were excited to have uh have on with us but unfortunately work-related things kept him from being able to and and now you're trying to have to speak through this mucus or whatever <laughs> Yeah, some kind of powers that be does not want us doing this, apparently. So, we finished the Maze Runner trilogy last week, and so now we are starting a new series with the uh, sci-fi and cyberpunk classic Blade Runner. This is one of those films that is just legendary. Um, you know, it, It's kind of become, you know, it's one of those things that is just untouchable in film culture. Um, and, and also, I don't think I've ever actually gotten your thoughts on this one, James. Which uh, I'm, uh, I'm very interested to hear because I, I have a, I have somewhat mixed thoughts on this movie. Um, so I'm very intrigued to hear what you think as well. Um, before we move into the main discussion, I want to ask you guys if you enjoy the show, to please uh, take a moment to go over to iTunes and leave us a review and also subscribe. And also, if you want to follow us for the latest updates as well as leaving feedback that we can read in the show, head over to Facebook and like us there at Franchise Fatigue Podcast. And before we start the main review, uh, I asked on Facebook and Twitter uh, what our listeners thought about this, this movie. So from Facebook, Silas said, I love it. I think the pacing is a little too slow at times. However, the film is a visually stunning masterpiece. Chris Reyes from the Story to Screen podcast said, Gorgeous effects and camera work. The most spaghetti noodle thin plot ever. <laughs> hmm. MJ Smith from the Real Perspective podcast said, Meh. <laughs> I feel you, MJ. I wonder what he thinks. <laughs> Uh, Philip said, still held up well last time I saw it. One of my favorite noir films. Uh, and James Harleman from Popcorn Theology said, my number one film of all time. And 2049 is a perfect compliment to it. I agree with that latter part. So on Twitter, uh, Mike at Jarek said, great if flawed movie. So let's dive into some of the behind the scenes history of this film. Um, so in 1968, sci-fi author Philip K. Dick published the novel to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Uh, it was the story of a bounty hunter tasked with hunting down and exterminating rogue androids. Um, have you read this story? Uh, I got two chapters into it because um, I wanted to read it before I watched the movie. And I was totally lost after two chapters. I had no idea what was going on. I want to go and reread it. Because, um, I, I mean, if anything, it has what might be my favorite book title of all time. There's something about that. I just I think it's like the coolest title ever but uh i'd be interested especially after having seen the the film so many times and seeing uh 2049 and where they eventually took the story and i guess what 
what we now consider to be the ideas of of the film Blade Runner. Um, it'd be interesting to see what the driving force and themes and everything were in the original work. Yeah. Although, supposedly, according to uh, the screenwriter uh, Hampton Fancher, really Scott never actually read the book, so <laughs> who knows how much they have in common. Um, and you know, just to get a picture of the influence Philip K. Dick has had on the sci-fi film landscape, here are just a couple of the films based on his works. You have Blade Runner, Total Recall, Minority Report, The Adjustment Bureau, and then the shows The Man in High Castle and Electric Dreams. So very, very influential author. Uh, there have been three authorized sequels published. Uh, they were done by K.W. Jeter and seem to function as companions to both the original the original book as well as the film and trying to work the film back into the mythology of, of, the, of the book. There had been multiple attempts to adapt the story into a film over the years. In the early 70s, producer Herb Jaffe wanted to turn it into a film. His son Robert wrote a script. Uh, Philip K. Dick hated it so much that when Robert flew out to discuss it with him, Dick later said that uh, the first thing I said to him when he got off the plane was, shall I beat you up here at the airport or shall I beat you up back at my apartment? In 1979, Hampton Fancher wrote a script for producer Michael Dealey. Uh, Dealey then got Ridley Scott involved. Scott had just lost his older brother, Frank, and he really wanted to start on a new film to keep busy. He had been working on Dune at the time. Uh, but the project wasn't moving uh, fast enough, and he wanted to get you know get into a film I- immediately, and that's really ironic, I think, because <laughs> you know he left Dune to make Blade Runner, and then all these years later, the guy who made the sequel to Blade Runner is now making Dune. After Scott had been brought in, they got the rights to the name of the science fiction novel The Blade Runner by Alan E. Norris and put it on their film, which sounds similar to how the title of uh, Die Hard uh, got to be on the movie it's on. The writing process was very stressful. Uh, Scott is a, or is or, or at least was a very demanding and specific filmmaker, um, while also not not being a, the greatest communicator at the time. This this would have only been his third film, which is just crazy to think about. You know, he had the Duelists, Alien, then this. That's, that's an amazing start. Yeah, and he was he was primarily a visual director, and according to the writers, he wasn't all that engaged uh, in the story as much as the, the visuals and ideas. Um, eventually, Fancher kind of burned out and, just, and dropped off the project. Then David Peoples was brought in. He, was, he had been working with uh, Scott, Ridley's brother, Tony Scott, at the time. Uh, so he came in and started, re- started rewriting on Fancher's script. And then Fancher came back on. And they both kind of worked at rewriting each other's scripts up until the uh, production. Uh, apparently, Dick hated early versions of Fancher's script. Uh, but he did, did supposedly come around to later revisions. And when he, as well as when he was sent uh, kind of a, an early effects reel, which supposedly totally blew him away uh, just looking at the cityscape and all the things they were able to accomplish with the effects um, but unfortunately he died of a stroke in March of 1982 at the age of 53 which is just a few months before the film was released so when it came time to casting the film uh, Hampton Fancher wanted uh, Robert Mitchum in the role of Rick Deckard initially uh, and he actually wrote the character with him in mind how old would he have been at the time because he was like a 50s actor wasn't he? yeah I, he was definitely like a more established name later i guess that would have been going more for like the older grizzled kind of retired detective then when scott came on they had extensive meetings with dustin hoffman about the role but that eventually fell through and then finally the role would be landed by harrison ford who was coming off of a big hot streak with uh star wars and raiders of the lost ark he was Pretty much like one of the biggest names at the time. Rutger Hauer was Scott's first choice for the replicant leader, Roy Batty, having been a fan of his of his work with Paul Verhoeven. Sean Young was cast as Rachel um, for Batty's posse. You have uh, Daryl Hannah as Pris. 
Breon James as Leon Kowalski and Joanna Cassidy as Zora. Uh, Edward James Olmos plays Deckard's fellow policeman Gaff. William Sanderson plays J.F. Sebastian. James Hong as Hannibal Chu. Uh, he's the guy with, he's the guy who does the eyes. Uh, and finally, Joe Turkle plays Dr. Eldon Tyrell. So the film was shot in and around L.A. Uh, there supposedly were a lot of tensions on set. Uh, Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott kind of famously did not get along. Scott being a kind of a total visionary, he wasn't good at uh, connecting with actors at the time. Kind of reminds me of Lucas. And, and Harrison Ford really wanted to be involved you know, in the story and you know, characterization as the film progressed. And so... Here's a quote from Ford. He said, oh, Blade Runner is not one of my favorite films. I tangled with Ridley. In another interview, he said, I admire, I admire his work. We had a bad patch there, but I'm over it. And when, when Ridley Scott was asked, who's the biggest pain in the arse you ever had to work with? He replied, it's got to be Harrison. He'll forgive me now because now I get on with him. Now he's become charming, but he knows a lot. And that's the problem. When we worked together, it was my first film up and I was the new kid on the block, but we made a good movie. It was a very miserable shoot for the cast and crew, uh, mostly shot at night, often with artificial rain. And in addition to the heated relationship with Ford, uh, Scott also had a tense relationship with the crew. So after Scott commented on an interview that he preferred working with British crews because when they were asked to do something, they simply said, yes, governor. Um, to which the crew responded by uh, having t-shirts saying, yes, governor, my ass printed on them. <laughs> and then Scott made a shirt that said, xenophobia sucks. And he wore a hat that said, gov. I also heard that... Uh... Ford and Young didn't really have a lot of chemistry and that kind of created some tension in some of their scenes on set, which will be relevant for a scene we'll talk about later. Yeah. Yeah, the film ended up going way over budget um, and it it just caused a lot of tensions with producers. It was was a a whole mess. So the film made extensive use of miniatures uh, in creating their futuristic depiction of the Los Angeles cityscape. Uh, supposedly the whole idea of Deckard being a replicant came from a shot where a red light that was supposed to be reflecting off Sean Young's eyes accidentally reflected off Harrison's. Um, both Fancher and People say they never had him as a replicant. So this is very much from the mind of Scott. And to this day, Harrison Ford denies that he's a replicant. Scott says he is. I know Fancher is kind of non-committal on the question. Yeah, and, and it's kind of become infamous at this point. Like this... This last minute thing that Scott interjected or injected into into the film has created this huge debate so much so that uh, apparently Villeneuve like intentionally avoids just answering the question explicitly. He's fully aware of the, the discussion around it. And so yeah, I remember there was a an interview with Scott, I think, that took place in 2012 or maybe just a year later. Um asking about a Blade Runner sequel, if it was ever going to happen, and, and if Harrison Ford could re- or was going to return. Uh, and Scott just matter-of-factly fla- matter said, well, he's a Nexus 7, and we don't really know how long they age, so I think they age like normal people, so he could. So, I mean, in his mind, that's exactly how it happened. So both Fancher and Peoples had written various versions of narration, kind of hearkening back to the hard-boiled classic noir films, Uh, But Scott wanted to shoot the film in a way that made narration unnecessary. Uh, However, following test screenings where the audience found the movie too confusing, can't imagine why, (laughs) the studio took over the editing and rewrote the narration that literally explained what was happening in every scene in blunt, painful detail. Uh, Harrison Ford was famously very unhappy about this. So just some, some quotes from Ford on it. 
What I remember more than anything else when I see Blade Runner is not the 50 nights of shooting in the rain, but the voiceover. I was still obliged to work for these clowns that came in uh, writing one bad voiceover after another. It was an effing nightmare. I thought that the film had worked without the narration, but now I was stuck recreating that narration, and I was obliged to do the voiceovers for people that did not represent the director's interest. I went kicking and screaming to the studio to record it. I mean, watch watch the the film with the uh, the narration, and you will understand Ford's uh, Ford's complaints. For the theatrical version's ending, which is different from I think what probably most people are used to now. Uh, they used unused helicopter footage from Stanley Kubrick's The Shining because the footage they shot in Utah was useless due to fog. At some point during the post-production, both Scott and producer Michael Dealey were essentially fired, but they continued working on the film just to get it finished. Uh, Greek musician and composer Vangelis uh, composed the dreamlike score for the film. Uh, he wrote the original love song, One More Kiss, uh, for the film, which was sung by Don Percival. And I think both of us... <laughs> kind of assumed that that was just a classic song from like the 40s or 50s or something like that but uh no it's an it's actually an original and then finally the film was released on june 25th 1982 and distributed by warner bros all right um so before i can even really ask what our history with this film is you kind of got to go over the various versions um so there are three main versions so you have the theatrical cut which is the one released in 1982 with the narration and the more upbeat ending then in 1990, a print of Scott's original cut was accidentally screened, and the reception to it was so positive that they decided to make a director's cut. Uh, so Blade Runner, the director's cut, was released in 1992 with the you know the narration was removed. Uh, they added the dream sequence of the unicorn and then removed the tacked-on happy ending. Um, but Scott f- wasn't fully happy with his version, uh, and in 2007, they released the final cut, where he had total control. Um, this one doesn't really have any massive story changes it's mainly small things like a a few you know a few seconds added to a shot here or there there's a there's a good bit of color correction in uh, here or there uh, so so moving into the main discussion uh james which which of these versions have you seen and uh, what's what's your history with this film uh i have only ever seen the final cut i remember uh my older brother was a big fan of the film and he couldn't believe that I hadn't seen it, which in retrospect is weird. I mean, it is kind of like a cult classic. Um, but I guess he was just shocked that he loves it so much and had failed as an older brother and needed to rectify that. So he bought this huge, like the big 30th uh, 30th anniversary special edition that had all the cuts. Um, and he looked up, you know, which cut sh- we should watch. And, and most of what you'll find is, is people saying the final cut. So we watched that. Um, and I've only ever watched that one since. Uh, as for my initial reaction, I remember I was super into it, like with the opening credits, the like the pounding music and and everything. I was like, okay, this is gonna be cool. We got the opening description, and then the the cars flying and the visuals blow me away. And then I hear that synthesizer, and the, my first viewing, I hated the score really? like, completely. Yeah, for for whatever reason. Uh, I just thought it was so cheesy, this high, higher-toned kind of cheesy 80s synth is the way I would have put it back then in my, you know, stupid youth, which is, I don't know, like six years ago, five years ago now. Although, it's probably thanks to this film that we did get a lot of really bad 80s synth scores. Probably. But for I just made this synonymous with those. And just, 
that that threw me off at first and then there was just so much weirdness and there's so many like there's so many accents and weird performances and everything like keeping up with information was really difficult for me the first time um hearing all of the information was really difficult <laughs> everything at J.S. Sebastian's place was just odd and and like the entire final sequence is for some reason he strips down to his underwear and hunts him like a wolf. <laughs> it's it was such an odd experience. It ended, and I think that I said I really liked it, but in my head I was like, "What did I just watch?" <laughs> I had absolutely no idea how to process any of it. Um, and if I was being honest, I really to to try to give an answer that summed up my feelings would have been impossible. Then I watched it again, and I enjoyed it a good bit more. Um, I think I had seen it a couple times pretty quickly after that, uh, watching it with other people. And then before 2049 came out, we had a big day where we watched uh, the original, and then the three shorts, and then 2049. And that viewing uh, was probably when like my actual love for the film was cemented. Just because of like looking up things and try and clearing up stuff that I just kind of missed in the film and, and looking at other reactions. Um, so since then, that would have been 2017. Like I said, I, I really learned to like it a lot uh, on the second viewing, but I didn't come to, to appreciate, appreciate the film the way I do now um, until just before 2049 released. So I didn't get to see this film until uh, shortly before... Uh, 2049 came out uh, they had a, a re-release of the final cut in theaters so I got to see this in theaters which is a really cool experience so yeah I, d I didn't get to see this till about two years ago and then I didn't watch it again until I was preparing for this episode coming out of this the first time this was one of those films that I respected more than actually liked um, you know you can't help but be, be just be blown away by that opening sequence of you know going over the city with Vangelis' really amazing score there's just there's a tone to this movie that is just mesmerizing and, and the, the visual effects are, you know, astonishing to this day. They still hold up. Uh, and there, there are just, there are moments here and there that are just mesmerizing. I think like the, the scene in, uh, in the Tyrell's, uh, where Tyrell is murdered or the entire stalking scene in the end with the, you know, the tears in the rain speech. Like, there are just like moments that are absolutely mesmerizing, but on a whole, I was completely disconnected from the story. I was, often just kind of confused with the way information is parsed out. Um, and, you know, on the second viewing, a couple elements made more sense, you know, having seen, you know, 2049 a couple times and you just kind of, you know, applying some of the information I learned there back on this. It, it was a little smoother, but I'm, I, I still am very disconnected from the, from the characters and the story. Like any kind of emotion that he's really going for with the characters of Deckard and Rachel are, is just, I could not care less about. I don't, and I think a lot of the ideas aren't all that well explored. Um, not to just be constantly comparing it to uh, 2049. We'll, we'll have plenty of time to discuss that next week. But uh, I just feel that there's a really bizarre kind of obtuseness to the way Scott tells this story that was just unnecessary and just makes it needlessly difficult to get involved in. And in some ways, just the I think the way the human stories are told just completely unengaging in a way that was just unnecessary that, that I think just makes the film 
despite how absolutely impress it, impressive it is on a tactical level and just the way it's influenced cinema since then, it just makes it kind of irritating at times. Yeah, that's... And here's the thing, like, to me, I, I dislike the idea that after a movie is celebrated for a certain amount of years, it becomes untouchable. While I... I'm at a place that I really, really love the film. I'm also I also understand that position, and I'm not even prepared to say that like I'm right in saying it's amazing, or that someone else would be right in saying it's needlessly confusing. Um, I'm usually much more willing to just be, just to say that there's objective things about filmmaking. But but here I think it really because it's about these these bigger ideas and about these characters and everything, it's going to get a very subjective response. And, and for some reason over the years, I've just really come to a place where most most everything, there are still some problems that I have with it, uh, still some things that keep me from just calling it a bona fide flawless masterpiece the way some people do. But I'm sure we'll talk about that as we go on. Yeah, I think that this is a film where subjectivity and personal preference well, has a lot of leeway, I think. Um, especially just kind of in choices of how the story is told. But just to start off with some things I think both of us will absolutely love, uh, just the cinematography in this film is absolutely unreal. It's shot, I think it's like, it's like a, it's like a straight up kind of noir film. It's like, especially that, that opening scene with the interrogation where it's just all these, you know, the, 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 the light coming in through the, um, through the blinds and this the cigarette smoke is everywhere and it's just it has that really grungy highly stylized feel of the classic noirs and it's just it's just ingrained into the bones of this film every shot is just beautiful and filled with so much just attitude sounds too glib i guess character yeah i i love that opening uh Void comp scene. So, like, w- the actor who's doing it is fantastic. Like, he himself. The guy who's taking is it Kowalski or the guy who's administering? Uh, the guy who's administering it. Oh yeah, he's he 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 belongs in like a fifties noir movie. It's like he almost had like himself has like that Harrison Ford level of like charm and swagger, where like Leon asks him a question and he just continues, um, his own question. And then just kind of sits back and smiles and is like, and, and as for your inquiry, it's just something like he's just so he'll switch from being like this really cold and charged and then just kind of like calming like, oh, we're all cool here. I just I really, really like his very small performance. Um, but yet yeah, the, the tone that's established so quickly in this film with that scene and just the scene of flying over the cityscape and the, just the fire shooting up like that's become such an iconic image and i mean just the miniatures themselves make it almost impossible to not make everything look amazing but the way the camera moves around these like angular like tyrell corp just looks incredible with like this pyramidal kind of shape and stuff and the police station yeah all of this like the architecture of the world feels so established. It doesn't just feel like oh, a, a series of like cool. This would be a cool idea, and this would be a cool idea. It just it feels lived in. Like this is what this society now looks like. Yeah, it feels like it took that lived in future aesthetic that Lucas kind of brought onto the map with with the first start with Star Wars with the New Hope, and then 
it ran like oh this you know this is a lived in future if we're at like the bottom rung and everyone is poor and the world is dead and you are hopeless like that that is that kind of lived in world um and I think the cinematography does a lot in establishing that we're we're constantly shooting like from the bottom up like we're down in in the you know the dark rain swept streets and there's trash everywhere we're constantly just like looking up and you can just barely see the sky through all the just the buildings and wires and and the advertisements and the blimps it's just he, he, he makes you feel like you are trapped in this just grimy underbelly with everyone else for the entire film yeah something that i thought was really cool um is when we're on the streets and we're looking up like you said we barely ever just get a clean view of the sky because the blimps are flying around this is just such such an iconic aesthetic but one that earns that level it's it's so extreme yet beautifully consistent throughout the entire film there's never a moment where you doubt it and it which is insane just for how out there it is. Yeah, and then even from, you know, all of these shots where we're down looking up, there's a lot of amazing aerial shots where we're in the cars flying over the city. And the way that they shoot these miniatures just blows my mind. I feel like this has to have been some of like what Jackson looked to when he shot all of his extensive, uh, extensive shooting with miniatures for Lord of the Rings. Uh, in fact, there were a couple of shots that felt very similar from Lord of the Rings to this where... Uh, as they go in to land uh, on one of the, the helipads, the camera just kind of starts to go slowly like downward as it's twisting around. It feels a lot like what he, what he does, like at Orthanc or Baradur and, and Lord of the Rings. But, you know, when we're on the streets, we can't ever really see the sky. And then whenever we're in the sky, we can't really see the streets just because the buildings are so clumpled, like oh, clumpled, I made a new word. The, the <laughs> buildings are just so compact together uh, and like I said they widen out from the top that you're just looking at a series of, of buildings without really ever seeing where it leads and so it, it creates this level of disconnect like like we're up there we're up in the top of the pyramids and these elevators and these cars uh, on this higher side of society totally disconnected from like the grimier world below and then when we're we're down below and we're looking up at the sky all we're seeing is this like these advertisements for this this paradise that we can't see and honestly like if we're still down here looking up that probably means there's a reason we're here and there's some reason we can't get off world so it's like looking up to see the sky all you're seeing is this promise of something you'll probably never be able to get and so all of it together it's just such an oppressive and yet still like darkly beautiful cityscape and environment and architecture and everything it's and and you you can infer so much about the society through that. It's it's really fantastic. Some of the best world building I think we've ever seen in film. Yeah, I think there's just a lot of kind of effortless things that Scott does to make the world building feel feel so tangible. Like things like the advertisements for the off-world colonies that are never really strict. Like they're never addressed in like a straight-up way. Oh, you know, these are the off-world colonies. This is what they do. They're just kind of referenced, you know, off to the side here and there. Like just the the Asian influence into into Los Angeles that you see there, or things like City Speak. Um, it's just all these little touches here and there that just make it feel like this is this is a real place. Like you, you can reach out and touch it, and though I, you probably never would want to, <laughs> because it's really really horrible. Yeah, and then so one of the reasons why I'm so glad that Scott was finally able to to make his film without the narration is you know it's we 
maybe you know there's def- definitely some confusing elements in the film and I won't pretend that there aren't but whenever we're just being introduced to characters and and the world and the environment I think just the the aesthetic of the film and and the cinematography and everything together just it tells its own story so that we we don't need Deckard explaining to us what city speak is you know we don't need him telling us what what skin job is we don't need all of this explained to us. It's just, like you said, it's effortless in the way it just conveys this information to us. We we know this is clearly being used as a slur. We can tell just by the people who are populating this and and uh, this amalgamation of what clearly sounds like, like these different kind of languages being fused together. Nothing really sounds perfectly natural. Nothing really flows perfectly together. It's, it's just, it, it feels apparent to to people who are allowing themselves to just like get immersed in the world another element that i found very interesting is the way it it seems that all human relationships seem to have broken down on some level um it's like just the urban life that has been created has just like sapped all real humanity out of the world I think you know the the open use of replicants as an expendable workforce, you know, who are just ruthlessly hunted down and murdered if they if they ever you know if they ever come to Earth, like that that alone has to you know harden the world a lot. But just there's something about how lonely everyone feels. Like there's no like you look at Deckard, like there's no, he has no real relations with anyone. Like he hates his boss. He hates his partner. He hates, he, or he's completely ambivalent towards replicants. Like he just spends his life alone in this grungy apartment or you look at like JF Sebastian, which is like one of the saddest characters I've ever seen <laughs> and probably definitely a serial killer. Um, despite being no. the nicest guy in the movie, like you, you, you know, you the first time you saw that movie, you definitely thought he was a serial killer when he was first leading Pris into his apartment. Nah, well, <laughs> but yeah, he, he's 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 the nice, he's kind of a nice guy, uh, really weird, but like just yeah, he, the way he he just surrounds himself with, himself with puppets and he's so beautifully awkward and pathetic. It's I just the world is so broken. And I think that that speaks to the way that I think replicants are almost like the most the the most humanity we see in this film is from replicants, which I I don't think was an accident on Scott's part. You have essentially these things that are fighting for their rights, fighting for their humanity, fighting for life itself. Whereas, and then you have this other group that seems to have taken that all for granted. Um, and in, in doing so has has lost any sense of humanity. Yeah, that was one of the things that really kept me from enjoying it the first time, and that's because I think I made no real effort to try to understand the the intention behind all of this. To me, it just felt like, you know, everybody is weird, and we're just moving from, like, this is this person's scene. This is the scene with the guy who makes eyes gets his lines. This is the scene where Tyrell gets his lines. This is a scene where Sebastian gets his because everybody is so isolated from everybody else. It's like in your own, when you're by yourself, there's total isolation. And then when you're not, it's just such a bustling, like shoulder to shoulder kind of world that there's no real chance to make relationships there. And for me, it just it felt really 
fragmented and it didn't help that like everyone has their own weird ways like sebastian like you can come in here if you want like it, it's just something so weird even though the police chief would be like uh we need you deckard it's one of the worst ones yet like everybody has a weird way of of reading their lines and their own weird eccentricities and apparently uh, edward james almost completely invented the city speak that he speaks in the film like he that was just his own choice to do it's really cool like it makes his character stand out even more but not on my first viewing for me for me it's just all of this i felt like i was being overloaded with this isolation and weirdness and uh, but yeah i i completely agree with with how we're meant with you and how we're meant to view this world of just it's a state of brokenness that there's the idea of of a friendship or like maintained family or anything just it feels so foreign uh watching just this movie because we're constantly like i said earlier we're just we're meeting these characters in these isolated ways of life of this man lives by himself this person lives by himself this person over here only like deals with people in mass and has no real way of creating any sort of meaningful relationships and our our one character that we're that we're meeting and getting to know seems to like intentionally being like intentionally living a life of of total isolation and and trying to uh just trying to keep his head down and and get through it without without really any interaction yeah like in, any any reference like aside from like the burgeoning quote-unquote romance between um deckard and rachel like any mention of sex or any of that is all also in this very nasty like oh the strip club or a pleasure model it's again just very gross disconnected warped view of the world yeah and this is an area where like i think i i enjoy this film even more retroactively having seen 2049 especially just the way villeneuve portrays uh things like that in in his in that future of 2049 and thinking about this with that mindset I think it's not a, an example of where I'm having to retroactively fix the film, but I think it's pointing out things that were already present here. Just the way, I mean, the the idea that this that this person Pris is her existence is defined as as a pleasure model, yet they clearly allow things like emotion because the humans want to have that interaction. Exactly, like that they need that kind of response. It can't just be the object itself. And so then whenever you, it's like whenever you're piecing all of this information together, just looking at how dark, we ne- I don't think there's ever a scene in daylight in this film. It's like, it's, it's nighttime from start to finish. It, I don't even know what daylight looks like in this future. Um, but whenever you just put all the pieces of, of the architecture and, and what the city looks like and and the, the idea that everybody is separated from everyone else, that there's no like celebrated shared humanity and that humanity has reached a point to where we're totally cool with making these things that, that feel real and that think they are real uh, only for the sake of, of our satisfaction, however dark that satisfaction is. All of that together completely paints uh, the perfect picture of, of what scott wants us to think about this this future it's just so cohesive in its in its visual and just in its depiction of of humanity as a as a whole so 
one of the things, you know, moving away just from the production design, because honestly, we, we could just talk about that forever. The actual plot itself. So I know this is this is where it gets divisive. Um, I think for me, the one thing that I at least enjoyed uh, the first time and then more so the second time once I was, I think I watched it with subtitles throughout the second time I watched it and that really helped kind of put things together. Um, I like that it's this noir thriller, you know, even even when sometimes it's it's kind of difficult to track along with the leads. There is just like when you see what society has become and you see the aesthetic of this world, like this this neo noir kind of story is like clearly the best way to go. And uh, and so just walking through the streets with all of these neon like this neon drenched world above us. Uh, going from from store to store, asking all these questions, it just it feels like the right kind of story to tell here, and and I love the the shot where it starts uh, outside of uh, of the police chief's office, and we just see desk after desk of all of these officers, and we we slow the camera slowly moves in from over his office and ends right behind him, and then Deckard walks in. Uh, and you've got their exchange together, and then the two of them, and, and the the chief is smoking a cigarette again as he's giving them the the rundown on on the people who are here. It's just it feels right, like it just feels like this really cool kind of police thriller set in this just horrific world. Although when you think about it, the story is really straightforward. Like he goes to Kowalski's apartment, that leads him to the, to the strip club, and then. Roy Batty uses Sebastian to get into Tyrell, kills Tyrell, and that leads him back to Sebastian's apartment, and then it ends. Like, there's not a lot happens in this movie if you actually break it down. Yeah, and that was that's what was so weird. The first time I watched it, trying to sit back and think, like, what? Okay, so what are the order of events? What was what was happening? What were goals and motivations? What's the actual plot? And then watching it the second time, I kind of had that realization. Where I'm like, honestly, this is super. Like, like you said, it's straightforward. At the end of the day, it's you know, there. There are there are replicants here who aren't supposed to be here, and you've got to go and hunt them down. That's it. And I think, you know, so much of the world, so much of the the time between these plot points is just is spent on this continued world building. You know, when we get to these locations, a lot of times we end up spending a long time there as as we just establish everything that we need to know about this place, and so. Um, structurally, like it really is like this beat, then this beat, then this beat, then we're done. Um, but I think moving from these different places, getting these different aesthetics, because society is just an amalgamation of, of earth, you know, we're on, we're at America, you know, we're in Los Angeles, but at this point it, it feels like just all of the different cultures of the world, you know, slamming together in this one city. It's like every, everything on the planet that couldn't get off world is here. And so... You know, when when we go to these clubs and when we go to these uh, apartments and stuff, we spend longer there just because, like, we're soaking up the environment. Yeah. And so I think now I should probably get into some of my issues with this film. I think my biggest one is simply the character of Deckard. Um, I think he is a supremely uninteresting and unengaging person. Like, there's nothing about him start to finish that I find that there's like anything to connect to he's just so, there's he's so distant and like i think you know that's partly intentional you know as we're talking about playing the loneliness and the, the how pathetic humanity's become 
But again, pointing to 2049, I think that that film is able to do the same thing, but also do it with humanity to where they, 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 we, we feel the pain of that kind of life. I don't feel, I don't sense any real pain in him. I, I don't understand what he thinks about this world. I don't understand what he, I don't know what he thinks about being a Blade Runner. I don't know how he feels about anything that happens to him. He's just so glazed and disconnected from everything in the story that I just, I don't care. Like at any step of the way, like when we finally get to the end and the question is raised, oh, we see a replicant. I'm like, I don't care. Like, like it's a question of like, oh, humanity is one of these deep questions of humanity. Like, oh, what am I? And like, I don't care. I don't, I, I don't care about you. So I don't care about your, you know, your humanity or androidness. It's just, it's just so blech. And I think, you know, building on top of that, the, the romance that is built between him and Rachel is so, so badly done to where there's never, they never make, there's no reason for the, whatever quasi connection they've built aside from him seemingly forcing himself on her at one point. There's no, there's no, there's nothing, nothing between them. There's just, it just happens because this is plot and the femme fatale has to fall in love with our old grizzled hero because noir. And that, that, that is, that's the hard, supposedly the heart of this movie. That's what us as humans are have, have to connect to with this film. And it just doesn't work in my opinion. So he was another character where, especially the first time through, I, I didn't care about him at all. And even the second time has the, my second viewing was way more focused on like putting together plot points and, and making sense of everything and uh, an order of events and stuff like that. It wasn't until my more recent viewings that I really started to connect with him as a character and see what they're doing with him. And, and then having just, you know, watched uh, before recording uh, the scenes of the narration, you know, a lot of what he's saying is stuff that I got and I'm glad it, the narration was left out to me. I've come to a point where, like, I actually find him a, a really interesting character. Where he's he's affected like everyone else by by the life by what life is now at this point. Um, he's he's cool to just let everything happen, but kind of subtly, I guess he he's giving off this this vibe that like oh I don't care you know I'm just one of everybody else now um, but he's kind of through with it like if, if you look at him um, on a deeper level I think he's very much being affected by this kind of way of life in a way that that he knows isn't right like or I should have written better notes to try to make anything coherent out of this but I think a lot of that, and there's some. I think the scene is problematic. Uh, a lot of that is revealed in that scene with with Rachel, where he seemingly forces himself on her. I guess just to start with the beginning of of their relationship, she, you know, she says, uh, "You know, you don't you don't approve of replicants, or you don't like them, or, or something like that." And you don't think our work is a benefit? Oh yeah, uh, and you know, he's he says they're like any other tool. If it's, if it's a benefit, it's not my problem. Yeah, so he's affected in the in the same way that the world is. You know, these are just these aren't things; these aren't people. Um, but I think that actions he takes during the film like clearly betray that. 
like with him shooting Zora as he is just I think we're meant to to look at him as he approaches the body like really shaken up by that um everyone like the other officers just kind of show up check people like everything's kind of normal there's not even really a, a panic in the streets but he he seems like this is starting to affect him. Well, I think he's shaken up because he almost got beat to death by Leon Kowalski. That too, but it, this was more of, to me, this, just his expression. Uh, no, th- I'm talking about whenever he first approaches the body. This is before he's beaten up. Hmm. This is like right as he walks up to Zora's dead body. Uh, and then he finds Kowalski and, and that whole exchange happens. So I, I think he's being forced to experience what these things are that these things are beyond just tools um and and even you know when he's on the it's on his investigation and he's looking uh he's looking for the uh the snake manufacturer and everything and he he calls rachel uh and he says uh i've had people walk out on me before but not when i was being so charming Uh, i think he's almost taken by the fact that that a replicant walked out on him that you know these these things have been designed from the beginning to to comply with what we pay for and and here is someone who we find out later uh is a, a different model a nexus 7 i mean but he's the blade runner he's the his job is to find the non-compliant version he, he he knows how non-compliant they can be but i think that this is well yes but i think that's part of why he is the way he is i think that's why him being okay with this society like i'm just one of everybody else like I don't know how how much of a problem the people of this world see the state of the world as being. You know, I'm sure they hate that they're stuck here and not off-world, but I don't know if their problems with the state of society are moral ones. And I think I think that that's how he's trying to present himself. And he, and again, like the the overt narration has, like you know, he says, uh, uh, "I was an ex." A cop, an ex Blade Runner, an ex killer. You know, I had enough killing in my life, but I was, uh, I forget what he says. It's something bad. Like the whole dialogue is bad, but he's pretty much saying, you know, I, I left it because I was done with that. One of the reasons why I really dislike that that was a narration is because despite that there's a cut of him saying it at that moment, I don't think that he would even acknowledge that to himself. I don't, I don't think that he would let on to anyone, even himself, that he has any problem with retiring uh, these uh, these replicants. And that's also why I, I dislike the narration because, you know, it says ex-killer. I don't think that he would even... I think deep down he considers himself an ex-killer, but I don't think he'd voice that to himself or anyone else. You know, that's why we just... We use the term retiring to distance ourselves from, from the crime that we probably know deep down that that we're committing. Yeah, but I, I, I you know, watched this movie two times watching very closely, and if I hadn't seen that, then you know, the narrated version, I would never have known that was the reason for his retiring. It's just not so non-present in the film. See, I, that's, you know, I, I hadn't watched the, the narration until only just now, and, and that's kind of what my take for the last couple of viewings has been, is, is you know, he, because you have to figure out, like, why is he so averse to to joining? And I think initially we were given so little about the character that we really don't have enough of a lead to go on. But as, you know, after his confrontation with Leon and after 
after just his expression in shock, uh, you know, after he shoots Zora and everything, I think we we're kind of meant to gather that that this is why he left. That this isn't something he's he's comfortable with doing. And then, and the thing is with Rachel, the difference between her non-compliance and and everyone else's is, you know, looking up. I was one of the things that I think we were both confused about is, you know, if if nexus is, or if replicants are illegal on Earth and it's known that Rachel is a replicant, like how is how is that explained? And and I don't know if the movie really does explain it. It seems to me that, you know, if you're not little people, you're big people. Tyrell is big people. He keeps her on a leash and, and gets to be above the law. And that's kind of how I I take that to be. And so, but I, I still, to me, understand it as she is on a leash. Uh, and so for her, for him to see this person that he's, you know, with everyone else, you, you don't have that time to really get to know them. His job is just to hunt these people down. But here is someone who's just able to be here and is given a level of emotions that he probably hasn't seen from a lot of the a lot of the replicants he's hunted down. And so especially the the, the big difference between Rachel and the people that he's he's hunted is that she didn't know she was a replicant and that that really takes him back and he's like you know how can it not know and he even refers to her as as it in that scene you know how can it not know um and then she confronts him convinced that these are her own memories i think i think the reason he calls her there and is is starting to be more taken by her is now the question is as well like if it thinks it's a human and it if it has these memories and it's you know, for all intents and purposes, like lived the human experience, I think it's really starting to force him to to ask the question, what is the difference between humans and replicants? Um, and we never hear him refer to her as like it. I mean, you know, granted, he he's not, he doesn't talk to Tyrell after that scene again. Um, but I think he starts looking at replicants in a different light and his aversion to his job as a Blade Runner becomes harder and harder as as he's trying he's getting back into the game, one that he's made an attempt to leave, while also dealing with this new issue of of here's here's something that doesn't even know it's replicant. These things think you know, before I was dealing with these things thought that replicants had enough worth, you know, as a human did and think that, you know, as replicants, they deserve rights. Now, here's someone thinking that, that it's a human. Like, that's how, that's how, how much emotion these things have. That's how human of an experience they're allowed to have. Um, and so I, I kind of buy why he is more taken with Rachel and interested in her. And uh, I think the problem that I have uh, and that keeps me from calling it just the unequivocal masterpiece that that a lot of people do is I don't see the same reasoning from her to him uh, there there are moments that I that I do like there are scenes that I like a lot um, where after she saves him and they're back at the apartment and and she's like if I left would you haunt me and he's like no I wouldn't but someone would um, I think that that she sees, you know, that maybe for the first time in in her existence, here's someone that's starting to look at replicants as something with some sort of inherent worth or value. 
but that's that's really it as far as developing that relationship and and then I guess which brings us to the the problematic scene uh, that starts off fooling you. But, but, but going going back a little bit to where you were to that that whole thing you talked about, like I agree that like that was probably the intent. But how much of that is really present in the film, and how much of that is you trying to fill in? Essentially, I would say maybe maybe imposing your yourself and your own thought process onto the film and trying to make sense of it. That, and this is this is why I I wanted to make sure to bring up just like the the conversation on of subjectivity at the very beginning and why I think someone calling this this film amazing and someone else calling it like really lacking. I don't think that I'm at a place where I can say either person is wrong is because I'm just not sure exactly how I feel about something like that. Like, is it possible to intentionally leave out this level of stuff and allow you to impose what you're doing? Like, I love films that leave it up to the audience to kind of infer things that need to be inferred. I think this is this is taking that and, and really running with it. And to me, it's, it's almost up to the individual to decide how much that bothers them and how much it doesn't. Because to me, I'm at a place where I, I watch the film through that filter and through that lens uh, and what I think they're saying about Deckard and what I think they're wanting to say about Deckard. And when I watch it with that in mind, for, for myself, I feel as if I'm getting an entirely, as far as Deckard is concerned, a, a satisfactory story start to finish i feel like i saw who he was at the beginning who he was at the end trying to discern where that is what the film is doing and where i was you know plugging holes or whatever uh i'm not you know i don't know exactly where that happens but just for me i feel if it was the problem i think would be if i i couldn't find something that worked with everything you know like with this this idea in mind it really makes sense of this part but then again at this end i really don't know if that's what they're saying because it doesn't line up with his actions here to me like i guess my my interpretation of what they're doing with deckard gives me a satisfactory start point and end point for his character that i'm not maybe not 100% 100% convinced that like this is what they were going for with this character but I feel like it holds up enough that even if it wasn't maybe maybe what they were going for was just I don't know this enough enough humanity there that allows the viewers to kind of fill in the holes and make him into the character they they want him to be but I don't know, and again it gets super subjective and I there are other films that probably do the same thing that I rail against because I dislike it but for some reason here, I really feel like I'm able to appreciate him as a character and get a, a full, well-rounded performance um, and arc from beginning to end with him. Um, you know, by by the end when he's he's lying covered in rain, looking at the the body of Roy. In that moment, I'm like, wow, I, this character has been through something. This isn't the same character who we saw at the beginning and. And it, it emotionally tracks for me for whatever reason. Well, you're wrong. All right. 
uh, yeah, I, I understand that. I just it, I get nothing out of it. like the only moment I really like. Even I think even Harrison Ford is like is just done no favors by the script, and I, I don't like I don't really get anything from him. Like the only scene that I really like from him is when he like switches and turns into that like super sleazy <laughs> union agent. I do love that. Like that's like oh oh like oh personality. Yes, thank you. Finally. Um, but yeah, I just, as a character, as a performance, I, I really get nothing from this. I feel like the, his first, the first half, like that coldness and like, I don't think you're meant to really get anything out of him. Well, the second half either though, when he's just looking confused and scared and desperate and like, whatever, dude, you can die for all I care. See, at that point, that's where I feel like I have seen him grow and be forced to, to come to terms with things that he's been complicit in allowing happen with society. Now, like, that confused and shaken up and and an unnerved look is like, crap, you know, I, I keep saying that I'm cool with this and now this is the result of that. And I don't know, I, I, I feel like it's, well, one, to me, Ford has never really been one for subtle performances and i think one of the things that i like about this is it's maybe one of his more subtle ones where as the film goes on it's not really in the dialogue and it's not even in his he has like a pantheon of like famous harrison ford expressions and we're not really given a lot of those it's just it feels more nuanced and and low-key and and subdued and but i I think it's there i noticed we still uh, managed to skirt that scene (laughs) yeah i got that I don't I don't know what they were trying to go for. I guess like there if you approach it with a from a charitable perspective, you could say that Rachel felt something for him and her trying to leave was just you know attempt to clamp down on those feelings and to and she was just afraid of this burgeoning humanity or something or other, but just as the scene plays out, it is very disturbing and very gross and i think completely undermines any semblance of a romance like they were supposed to end on this is a a you know a reciprocal relationship that means a lot to both of them and they're running you know they're running off together and hopefully have a they can find a life together it's like yeah but he, he just he just raped her or came really damn close to it and it's yeah it's not good yeah, this, and the problem with this is even the more charitable readings of this scene are still like they still leave me in an uncomfortable place. Uh, and I was really, to me, I was thinking like there's in my mind I was like there's something profound being said here, and it's on me for thinking it's gross. And so just out of my own desire to be able to love the film without any sort of like hesitations, I was looking up to see you know what is the consensus on this scene and. The scene itself is very controversial and, and divisive, and the the by far consensus that I've seen is very similar to that. And pre- I mean, pretty much exactly that. The idea that she's feeling something she didn't know she was capable of, and she's running from it. Uh, and I, I've seen this logic used. It's almost word for word for what I'm going to say, and this is where it really gets kind of gross. Uh, is that, you know, Deckard, especially if you make parallels that I don't know if they're intentionally there, but they feel like they might be. And even if not, I don't even think the parallels have to be intentional for them to be relevant. Uh, But a lot of the logic used is Deckard 
is a Blade Runner. It's his job to know what a replicant is thinking and to what a replicant is feeling. And it's essentially just he knows that she wanted it. But isn't that so woefully reductive of the rest of the film that is trying to establish replicants humanity well yeah there's so that's that's the other problem to me that that logic and this scene itself have those two problems one is that divorce from the larger themes that you just brought like that kind of betrays the idea of you can't gauge this you can't know this um because this is a person this isn't just a program like it has the problems of like that that if you say that logic out loud like he he could he knew she wanted. Like, that's just. I don't even awful. want to think about. It. Just don't even want to go there. Exactly. Yeah. So there, that itself is really off-putting to say the very least. And then thematically, yeah, you have the problem of this is his profession. He knew that this is what she was thinking. It's like, well, then is she different from the other replicants he's dealt with? And that's why I think his character, in terms of just his journey with with replicants and stuff. I think it works. I think the, the everything with Roy Batty works and, and everything going on there. I think the romance really doesn't work. One, because it's built off that scene. It betrays the, the themes of the film, I think, to a certain extent, if, if you run with it all the way. And then, like, the scene that the romance is established in is just really, really, like, wrong in the moment. And we don't have a scene after that. Yeah, and if the if the scene is supposed to be establishing that he, as a Blade Runner, still doesn't view replicants as fully human, okay, there, there's something to do with that. If the film is understanding that his actions are wrong and that the film is, you know, he is acting out of his, you know, bigotry towards replicants, there's at, there's at least something there. This acknowledgement of the of what is happening, but that that, that doesn't work because of how. In the next scene, in the next scene we see them together. They are all in love. So yeah. So one of the one of the ways that I, I saw it initially, and I think there might still be some of this. It's just one of the things that I, it felt like to me was because of the first half of this movie. He's just he's felt so closed off, and we already talked about like there's no such thing as as relationships anymore. You know, friends and family. We don't see any sort of interaction like that. We we just see a series of like business exchanges. And to me, what it felt like was him feeling feelings for the first time, maybe in a long time or ever for someone. And like, just that, that base urge, I guess, or whatever, like just, this is not only is he seeing her experience them, but maybe this is the first time they've come up in a long time. And for once he feels human again, and he has this desire for something outside of, I don't, I don't know. I don't think we're like ever meant to think that you know he's been involved in like pleasure robots or whatever. But it it feels like for the first time he has a desire for something that he doesn't look at as just an object, and he pursues that in a very like primal way or whatever, just feeling that base humanity. But again, like if that's what they're going for, I think the film has to like rightfully punish him for that. And it's, it's there's no sensuality in that. It's it's portrayed violently. Like he's he looks ter- he's terrifying and brutal and there's there's like a, a implicit threat of violence in for like the first half of the scene. Yeah, and so a, a lot of people point to, you know, after <laughs> it's so weird you have to say after he slams the door and you know throws her against the wall, like he comes at her very softly and puts his hands out and everything and it seems like Gent, like quote unquote gentle, 
um, that that the attempt is made there. But I don't know. Even so, like to me, if if the way I take it, which I don't know, I still kind of take it this way, and and the fact that I do might make this even more like problematic for me is that again if that's what they're going for with this character that she's just awoken something base and like this this kind of humanity that's been locked away for whatever whatever reason the fact that the result of that display is a meaningful relationship (laughs) is really like it doesn't work at all for for these two characters and i'm I'm Um, already disinclined to make excuses for this film anyway so yeah i don't it's just like i said my problems are almost completely contained within their relationship uh and again like the next scene i think that they share together after that is at the very end when he like he comes into the apartment and he pulls a blanket down he sees there and he's like do you love me i love you do you trust me i trust like where that's that's an area where like it being up to the viewer to connect the dots or or fill in the blank does not work at all for me because this relationship is started with this really weird scene that i don't like at all and the relationship is completely absent for the rest of the film and then we come back to the end and there's just this full level of love and trust that we're meant to believe is there and it, it just doesn't work at all for me and to top it off i don't think sean young was a very good actress in this movie <laughs> she has a, a very striking design like her design is incredible just the way she comes the, the hairstyle and just there's something so you know i think impressive about the figure she cuts but when she actually has to speak and emote and portray you know a human who is realizing that they're not actually human i think she's super stiff and awkward in her line delivery see i actually really like her performance it it feels like it feels like a robot but she shouldn't be a robot because she does she's as far as she's aware she's not a robot see i don't think she feels like a robot i think she feels one i mean if with that scene with her feeling those feelings and then instantly getting up I think that we can also just apply that to her character as a whole of like trying to think of what I said to me she just her performance has a discernible level of like just naivety about her that I uh, that I like a lot where she she always you know in their initial scene which I think she's really good and she feels like she's really kind of like taking charge you know like uh is this to test if I'm a replicant or a lesbian Mr. Deckard like kind of this air of like I'm I'm someone who's who's in charge of the situation and then she kind of crumbles as her world falls around it but it's a very contained kind of isolated introverted crumbling where you know she shows up with the picture and she's convinced of it and uh, one of her line rings that I, I like a lot is as he's telling the story about the spiders and then she finishes the story and she's like and a hundred baby spiders came out and ate it like you kind of hear the quiver like of the cry in her voice as she's like, she showed up there convinced that she's about to prove him wrong. And she just had her entire world shattered and, and she's not like falling on the floor crying, but it feels very much like this kind of contained losing your mind and then coming to terms with it. Like not losing your mind, but like completely losing your identity and then having to come to terms with with this new identity in, in her head and 
I don't know. It, it to me, it never really felt stiff or robotic. Just like this, this kind of quiet, introverted self kind of. I don't know. To me, th- there's definitely oddities to the performance, but I think it works, especially whenever she's also surrounded by a lot of other odd perform, like what feel like intentionally odd performances. And I, I do want to get back to that scene because I do like that scene a lot. But I think another issue I have is that. We never got a sense of who she was, and you know what what did she think about life? What does she care about in life? What what you know? How, how did she feel? You know, what did life mean to her before realizing that it was all a lie to make the re- revelation that it was all a lie actually impactful? And that's a problem of spending like four scenes with her. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, but let's, let's let's move into that. I, I think you, you you know a little while back in the conversation you were talking a lot about memory, and I think that that's a, is a very fascinating case that the film makes. I think the film makes is that memory might just be the key to humanity. For example, you know when Tyrell comes in with, with the the slogan "More human than human," and you know Rachel is you know the the, the prime test subject. Where she's she is a replicant who is given artificial human memories, uh, for the sake you know for the sake of being able to replicate humanity. I'm not sure what the what, what exactly the product uh, purpose the purpose purpose as a product is there. Maybe it's just pure god complex. You know, I think that's what it is based on his interaction with Roy. Yeah, that's quite possible as well. Um, but yeah, he, so he's trying to create humans essentially. And the key to that with her is memory, and then you know, going later on when she comes to him after realizing that she that that she failed the Voigt Kampf test to try and prove her humanity is, she comes with memory, and what does he do? He turns that around by by the simple fact that I know what that memory is. Therefore, you are not human. Like he destroys her humanity through memory, and then going to the end scene, the final scene, with you know Roy Batty, and, and you know after you know stalking. And trying to kill Deckard, he finally chooses to save his life. And what what does you know, what what does he say at the end? You know, I, I've seen things. You know, and he what he talks about memory. All those, you know, all those memories will be lost like tears of the rain. Like it's as if he's making a final case of his own humanity to Deckard, and the case he's trying to make is again through memory, not not through implanted memories. But these are real. These are my memories. These are the things I have seen. You know, as a soul, as a soldier, as a replicant slave, these are the things I have seen. These are the experiences I have had that make me a unique individual that will now be lost. And it's it's almost as if I think he chooses to save Deckard in a way because Deckard will probably be the only thing, you know, the only the only um piece of him that will live on, you know. All his family is, has been killed and now he can give Deckard this whatever humanity he has and now Deckard's gonna have to carry that for it's like it's I feel like that, that scene is almost as if he's trying to live on through Deckard by convincing Deckard of his own humanity just you know that that the one last grasp for immortality that humans have you know through legacy that we try to we that we try to create through legacy um and yeah it feels like the the movie throughout is trying is is making the claim that memory is the key to what we are as humans yeah, and and you know when, if you ask that, like, well, why memory? It's it's because that's that's what shapes us. You know, mem like there's there's a single memory, and then there's just a history of memories of, and and that's an, a human experience. And and I think that's 
that's why they're looked at and you know we've got the the comparisons to tools you know these are just objects it's because you know memory like that's not non-existent them not just you know obviously they're not cognitive but just memories and experience don't shape them you know if you have an object designed to do one thing it does one thing and it's not going to change based on any sort of experience but that's that's the argument that seems to be to be being made with these replicants is that you know we're we're designed for these purposes and yet i've seen these things pris is different from me zora is different from me rachel is different from all of them rachel just killed one of them. like they're they're different and they've been defined by their own experiences formed by these memories you know like and like you said you know those were implants at first but now these are their memories and so now you know the conclusion that that these all of these different replicants we've come across to are are different now have variations because they've they've actually formed their own unique memories that have shaped them into different people um and so i i thought that that's just a cool idea in the film itself uh what it's saying is that it's it's these experiences and what we make of them that make us human and and how we react and that you know we're we're a product of of the memories that we have and uh it's just a really interesting idea that hasn't been explored a whole lot i think in in a lot of these kind of like what does it mean to be human kind of sci-fis i'll be you know like uh, blade runner may have been you know probably one of the first ones but i still think it explores it in an interesting way that that a lot outside of 2049 um haven't really so you know bringing up roy uh he was a character he was another thing that again on the first viewing did not really work well for me uh i just it was so weird he'll he'll do things where like he'll make this exaggerated like sad face and then he'll turn it into a smile like quickly after that and and he does so many his, his line is weird where she's like i think therefore i am he's like very good pris now show him why like he's just he's so odd and rutger Hauer is having so <sighs> much fun he's making and he's the, the only most. one <laughs> but he like he's owning this movie like he and he also he's very polygon this this is his his favorite film that he's been in he loves this movie and you can you can see that in his performance it, it's on Rut- like now watching it after that first viewing i it's fantastic i i love pretty much every decision he makes with the character and I, I love his introduction uh where we just see his hand cramping up and like on rewatches you know what that means i think you you can kind of get it when when his first lines you know time not enough time but you know watching the finale where his hand does that again and it recreates that shot of him looking down at his hand as it coils back and and having to stab it to live long, like he's fighting off his death uh you know, on rewatches, that kind of kicks off this this uh, ticking clock, uh, and he gives his whole his whole side of the film a sense of urgency. What I what I liked that I that's present in the movie, and then explicitly explained by the by Harrison Ford's narration as as he dies, is just the idea that you know he was he was looking for more time. Yes, he was looking for life. But I think on a deeper level, he was looking for meaning and purpose. And and I think Deckard says, like, he was he was looking for the... And <laughs> you could tell Ford hated the script just by the way he reads it. But Or the, the narration, uh, by the way he reads it, where he's like, 
He was looking for the things that we were all looking for. What's my point or what's my purpose? <laughs> Where did I come from? Where am I going? Uh, but I think we really get that with with just his performance. You know, it doesn't need to be said. You know, he's he's searching for his creator to find meaning and to find life. Um, in this most recent watch, uh, I made a parallel with him uh, that I had made before, or at least a similarities I noticed with him and with David from from Scott's other films, Prometheus and, and Alien Covenant, of where David has the luxury of knowing his um, his creator, and he gets it, he knows what he's created for, but he wants to be something more. And so there's there's a little bit of not direct parallels because I think David has already feels like he knows what he was made for but feels like it's not enough and then takes on himself to make his own things and but Roy is just seeking that initial like what am I here what makes me unique and uh I love his line where he's like uh nothing that the god of bioengineering couldn't forgive like this is who this is to him um and that that whole scene that confrontation between he and Tyrell is just so great. One, the set itself is phenomenal. His huge, like, uh, four-cornered bed with the, the huge draping uh, bed sheets and stuff. And that that seems also, you know, why why I think the whole point of, of Rachel uh, and presumably maybe this next line of replicants he was working on, it, it would become less of a business venture and more of, a result of this God complex that he has, you know, cause he's not concerned at all with the crimes Roy's committed. Uh, he's, he's kind of impressed by it. He's, he's impressed by what he's been able to do. Uh, and another line that I think is fantastic, uh, is the, uh, the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long and you've burned so very brightly. Like, and, and he refers to like the prodigal son, this this is his legacy. This is proof of what he's created. He might as well be a god because these things are living for themselves. And and uh, and so just seeing him with his god complex confront Roy, who is seeking these answers, it's just such a fascinating scene to me. Yeah, I think the guy who plays uh, Tyrell, I think, is is quite good. Very sleazy and pompous and self satisfied. But it's interesting. I feel I feel like almost as if. Roy then picks up some of that godplex god complex going forward, like the way he stalks uh, Decker, like as if like you know I I am bringing death and also and like I can bring death and I can grant life by saving. Like it feels like he is really kind of carrying his master's torch in that way. Yeah, and it also it to me it feels like, I mean he even he reiterates the line that Leon had where you know. Uh, I can't remember the line itself. Uh, it's not easy living a life in fear. Uh, like that's, I don't think it was pre-planned. I don't think he he got there with any intention of saving Deckard or anything, but in in maybe a, a different way, trying to to make this argument again to Deckard of a, a case for for his own existence and his own like self-worth is by forcing Deckard to live the life in this like microchasm, this this short exchange 
but make one that's representative of of Roy's larger life of 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 being hunted, you know, in that moment, Roy is the blade runner. Roy is the guy sent in to kill this person. And, and Deckard has to live running from this thing that seems to have one purpose and views you for, for one thing. Like this is, this is the enemy. This is the thing that I have to go kill. And, and I love, I don't know how much of it was in the script or how much of it was just Howard just having fun with the role, but like I love how he turns it into the hunt and he's like howling and everything and stripping down to his underwear and just like prancing around. <laughs> There's that's another like moments that I just thought were so weird and off putting at first are moments that I love now. Like like whenever he just bashes his head through the wall. <laughs> uh or whenever uh Deckard bashes him with uh with that metal rod and he's just like, That's the spirit he's just like trying to get a rise out of him. It's like you better get it up. It's, it's his all of his lines are are so he says them so gleefully, and, but really tense final scene. That was irrational of you, <laughs> not to mention unsportsmanlike. Also, on top of all this, he's a total psychopath. He really, really likes hurting people. Like he even killed Jeff Sebastian, the, like the nicest dude in this movie, <laughs> who only helped them. That's not that's not right. You don't just kill Sebastian. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I really not to to just make the discussion too lengthy, but that, that's another performance that I liked a lot that I did not like at all in the first viewing. But Sebastian, yeah, just in retrospect, just him as this this sad, you know, little like disheveled person who's who's got no real friends or family is at the point of, you know, he's he's like the nice version of of Tyrell, where he's making these people. He's but it's. Where Tyrell is doing it to feed this kind of god complex, he's doing it just because he wants friends. Because nobody likes him and he can't make it off world. It's just such a sad character. Yeah, it it takes no effort trying to understand how he could be manipulated into you know taking them to see Tyrell because you know they say you know your best is best and only friend. It's just such a, a sad character and, and his weird not really stutter but the way he breaks up his sentences and like the flow of his sentences it the guy clearly just doesn't have practice talking to anybody and he's socially awkward and i actually really really like his performance now we're weirdly human for how odd and off-putting it is at first there's it's like the most recognizably human thing in the film just the, the you know the loneliness the awkwardness that you know, that, that, that's just the sense of being ill at ease that he carries around with him, at least when he's in, when he's with other people. Right, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's plenty more we could mention, but I, I think it's about time to start wrapping this up. I think you know, we, we've covered, I think, a lot of the main uh, things in this film. Uh, before we do the star rating, I do want to have a quick discussion on the score. Um, one interesting thing is that for some strange reason, this score did not get an official release until 1992 which is just weird. Like before that, all they had was like pirated and, uh, you know, copies that people passed around, which is just strange for how much of a legendary uh, film score it is. Um, just the, uh, he really, Vangelis really pioneered the use of, you know, electronic and, you know, synthesizers and all that in, uh, in film scoring, uh, probably in, in, you know, larger music in general. Um, I'm not actually I'm not really a fan of the way synthesizers were mainly used in the 80s and the way they kind of took over film scores. Uh, I don't like it, but th- this score I think is very very fitting. Um 
It's it's mainly done with the synthesizer. The synthesizer. Well, it's mainly done with the synthesizer. It's mainly done with the synthesizer. Uh, there's a bit, little bit of percussion here and there, a little bit of brass, but it's mainly all just variations on, on that instrument. <clears throat> One thing is weird is that the the score almost feels as if it's like at a distance from the movie. It never it never feels like really intertwined with it with you know, the rise and fall of the film. It almost feels like it's it's its own separate thing running alongside of it that usually agrees with whatever's happening on the film, but it also is almost like almost fully independent. Like there's it's there's something just very languid and about it that just kind of it, it sort of just bleeds together into the entire experience of the film but never never in a way that that mo- where it seems like most scores are really trying to get into the lifeboat of the movie this one feels much more separate yeah I, th- I think to an extent i think there are moments where it's really helping guide us through the emotions where we're supposed to be feeling and stuff uh and i, I think it does kind of help match the plot beat by beat in terms of like just as a, as a noir story um it feels like there are there are several moments where it's it's like you're translating this kind of classic sound that we would that we would pair with with this part of of these old gritty kind of like 50s stories and then process it through like a synthesizer and give us the futuristic version of that um so just running through some of the highlights First, you have a main title. Um, the, the, I gotta mention, there's one thing that I don't like about this score is that a lot of the tracks have dialogue from the movie over them, and this is something that film scores do, especially older ones that I just I, I don't like. I just I, I want to listen to the music. I don't need you talking over it. Uh, but there's a couple tracks that just it kind of gets irritating. Uh, but but just getting beyond that, um, this is I think this one is kind of just like the main sound for the film. It's that very dreamlike synthesizer. Uh, I feel like there's so much of the tone and feel of the film is set up in, in this one track. There's like a bit, kind of like a, a a bit of like longing and foreboding, but it also it, it almost feels like the it, like the world is presenting is like completely static in a way. Uh, it's just it's a, just a very interesting um, sound. Yeah, I, I really really love this theme now, especially. I mean, it's weird considering that I, I really did have a very strong negative reaction the first time I heard it. Uh, there's something about this music though being paired with like the fiery explosions and and uh flying lazily over these like pyramid structures in the city it just it works to to feel so foreign and cold to us um it's a really cool track though and then there's blush response which is like a faster more purposeful take on the kind of basic theme that we hear in the beginning um i like this one a lot it's 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 very engaging just kind of like i can't say upbeat but it's just it's more involving piece of music i think with the same basic sound that was set up in the previous track another track that i liked a lot was was wait for me uh to me i just described as like you take all of the 80s jazzy kind of nighttime music like hitting the mean streets but not maybe not me maybe more of kind of like just just hitting the night in general without divorced from some of you know the the noir vibe but you take all of that that kind of bass that was surrounding that decade and then you just process it through like the spacey kind of synthesizer and that's what you get and then there's a rachel song 
this has like these really somber female vocals in the background. It, it feels to me like it's a precursor to what uh, Ridley Scott did with a uh, with Elisa uh, Gerard in Gladiator. It's, it's, a, it's a very similar kind of sound. Um, I like this one. It's, it's very kind of. It, there's a lot of like longing t- uh, to it. Yeah, it's the vocals are really haunting, and it the the melody itself is just so melancholy and, and dreary, like, but not just like depressing. Uh, there's almost a level of like fantasy sound to it that I like a lot. And then there's that last one for me is uh, Tales from the Future. This one has like the kind of quavering vocals that it's, and I don't know what language, some foreign language, but uh, again, you reminded me of a, with Scott and Zimmer and how they use the African vocals in the score for Black Hawk Down. Uh, just, just felt like he got, he got a lot of his, um, his uh, at least for Scott, a lot of the kind of musical styles he would use later on in his films here. Yeah, to me, it, this this track really, this is this is one of the ones where I think the the music really is flowing really well with the the film and and is like taking part in that identity because it's like the musical version of just this amalgamation of these different cultures. Like it, you couldn't even just pin it pin down on like oh this is this thing. It it sounds like you've got all of these foreign influences coming together uh, that fits really well with the scene. Another one uh, that I like a lot is the the love theme. It's it's like a straight saxophone. Every seventies and eighties romance theme. Oh yeah, mixed with that deep bass. That's one where I definitely thought this was super cheesy, and I might even like even say yeah, it's kind of cheesy sounding, but I really really love it. It's it's that sound has just been parodied so much. Oh yeah, but. The one that I love even more than that, though, and the track is great, is Blade Runner Blues. This is the track that plays when he shoots Zora, and you just got that slow motion like scene of her falling through the glass in the snow. It's this is the one where it's like the kind of like the hitting the the mean streets kind of jazzy noir vibe, and you just you take a a saxophone and you're like, what would a saxophone sound like if? if it sounded like a, a synthesizer, like how would, how would that work? And that's all it is. It's like hitting all the notes and the style and vibe of a saxophone, but with a synthesizer and, and and the slow motion shot of like him with the gun and her falling down is, it's such a great scene. Um, and then lastly, which is my favorite track is uh, tears in the rain. This one is just so beautiful to me. And it's, it's one that I think, is kind of untouched by anything that could even be perceived as like 80s cheese. Like there's other tracks here where I think people can be like, oh wow, that hasn't aged well. I would disagree with them and think they're dumb. But in this one, this is one where I just, I think anybody should be able to listen to and, and think like this is, this is iconic for a reason. This is just, it's such a, a quiet kind of hopeful theme, but just, it feels like this has more more life in it uh more humanity in it than any of the other tracks and and it also helps that it's played over roy batty's final monologue which is great so just a a really really great isolated piece of music that hans zimmer rightfully returned in, in 2049 i think this will be the one and only time that you have more uh highlights in the soundtrack than me <laughs> All right. Um. Yeah. So overall, like, it, it's a very legendary film score. It's not my fa- like stylistically. It's, it's not the type that I really care to listen to all that much outside the film. Yeah. It's I've got a, a 
playlist, an ever-growing playlist of film scores I like, and and this has this and twenty forty nine both have several entries on it. There, I, I think one of the reasons that this one has become a super easy go to one for me is it uh, despite because I too get annoyed with the dialogue overlaid sometimes. Sometimes I think it sounds really cool. Other times I'm like I just want the music because what I think it does well is. It's so evocative of the mood it's creating, especially with something like Blade Runner Blues, where it's just you feel transported into that that vibe and atmosphere. Um, so I listen to it fairly often in relation to how often I, I usually listen to film scores. So closing out this uh, this section with our star rating, what do you give this film out of five stars? So I think if I'm just trying to be as critical of the film as I can. Uh, I do four stars, but for my own enjoyment of it, I, I do four and a half. I can't get to the point of where I like, there, there'll never be a point where I can watch it and just stamp the, the five out of five on it like so many people are able to. Uh, I, I, I'm not invested in their relationship, really. And I, you know, even though it's just an isolated scene, like that scene, I feel like does does have problems for their relationship in a big way and, and hurts the film thematically. It, and so there's always going to be some something about whenever I'm watching it that just pulls me from from loving it that much. Um, but the world he creates in this film is is really unlike anything. Uh, it's not even unlike 2049, which tried to which tried and did create its own visual identity, which is equally fantastic. But but even with a sequel, this film still stands wholly unique. Um, and it's it's made, able to make miniatures even before Jackson did. It just it makes miniatures look grand and sweeping and epic, and the, this world just feels so cohesive and perfect that. And and I, I love the noir vibe and the score and everything. So, uh, long explanation, but yeah, four and a half out of five. So surprisingly, I actually I would give this three and a half out of four five stars, which is honestly kind of shocking for me, simply because I I'm a big story and character guy, and I get next to nothing from the story and characters here. I'm basically the entirety of my ranking is simply for the visuals, you know, for what Ridley Scott was able to achieve in just creating this world that is, was so unique and so influential to film and just, you know, the, the isolated moments of brilliance that I see that you know sprinkled throughout that, you know, it, it's, it's one of those movies that like, Often, you know, going back, you watch classic. Like, I, I, I don't know why this became a classic. Like, watching a film like this, you're like, yes, I know exactly why this film is as famous and important as it is, despite not loving it at all. So, going into the uh, box office, I there's ca- some conflicting information into the exact deal t- details of the box office, but this is what I could come up with combining a few sources. I, you know, the film has had multiple releases over the years and a, l- a lot of the numbers have been combined. And also I don't even think it got a foreign release outside of England, which is strange. So I think it earned about 25 million domestically on this initial release. And this was on a $28 million budget. So a pretty significant bomb. And then even with later releases and then the domestic re-releases, um, the box office is currently at, at around $32 million, um, domestically and about $6 million in the foreign markets uh, for a worldwide total of about $39 million with all its releases put together. So, uh, yeah, not not a moneymaker. I wonder how much they were hoping for, like, the Star Wars effect of, like, just seeing something so foreign, like, perfectly brought to life on this huge screen. But I, I wouldn't surprise me if audiences were just totally amazed in the first 10 minutes by 
the sweeping skyline and cinematography and, and flying over all of this stuff and and then got immensely bored by the plot and everything afterwards. <clears throat> yeah, I guess bet- between Star Wars and Close Encounters, you know, a few years previously, the the wow factor might have worn off just a little bit. Yeah. And this was even post Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, too. And it, it's it's always really difficult to get any kind of full picture of a film's initial critical reception when it's from this long ago, especially when it's you know since become legendary. Um, the few original reviews that I, I read. Um, we were very enthusiastic in praising the visuals and the world building, but a lot of them also criticized the story and the character development. Like even the positive, like really positive reviews, they do mention that the characters and story are not that great. Um, so currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it holds a 90% and it holds an 89 on Metacritic. So very well loved. Um, like from what I can see, the current current critical consensus seems to be similar to movies like 2001 a space odyssey where everyone acknowledges its importance um but not everyone like really likes it um and the thing like even to this day a lot of the same criticisms that were thrown at the film upon its initial initial release are still thrown at it you know yeah sure i think there like current criticisms of the movie are are tempered with respect with you know a level of respect towards the movie and it's important but still like you read through like quite quite often when you read old reviews, like yeah, I don't even, what were they thinking? But even to this day, a lot of a lot of the current complaints and you know past complaints still kind of line up. As far as awards, it was nominated at the Oscars for best art direction and uh, best visual effects, but it lost to Gandhi and E.T. respectively. Uh, Vangelis got a Golden Globe nomination for best original score, uh, but lost to E.T. and John Williams. So as as far as the legacy goes, it's kind of hard to even quantify in high school I, I had to write a paper on the legacy tolkien left and ultimately the idea was just it's it's impossible to measure he he kind of defined fantasy as we as we know it and maybe not to quite that large of an effect but but pretty similar uh is is what blade runner has has done for sci-fi especially this brand of sci-fi visually he's pretty much helped create the cyber th- the cyberpunk aesthetic that that we know there you know games like mass effect and, and a cyberpunk that's going to be coming out soon i mean trying to cycle through a list would be impossible of just how how many films have taken visual cues and this is especially applied overseas in in japan with things like anime and manga you know things like akira really clearly take take a lot of visual cues from uh from this and so or, or something like, like ghosts in the shell which pretty much takes place in a blade runner world and deals with androids yeah and, and so yeah and, and even that it i think it's one of the earliest stories about you know whether it's a replicant or a clone or an android or whatever these these ideas of what does it mean to be human what is it that makes us human and these things not? It's it's one of the earliest examples of that kind of story. And f- so for, for that kind of story and these kind of visuals to be traced to one movie, I think is, is pretty impressive. Uh, just in terms of legacy, as far as you know, film goes, uh, you covered a, a bit of it with just, it's remembered in a, a very similar way as 2001 where it, it's got its circles where it, like this is the cream of the crop if you want me to point at a film that represents everything that we could achieve cinematically it's this and then you have other people who are going to point at it and be like oh, i found it to be a bore um but so but also like you said most most negative reactions 
give it a, a level of credit just in terms of visually what it did. So, yeah, quite a quite a huge legacy, though. All right. So that was Blade Runner. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed our discussion. If you did, I'd like to ask you guys again to please go over to iTunes and subscribe and leave a rating review. And if you want to like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at FranchisedPod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? You can follow me on Letterboxd. I am there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. You can also join us over on Facebook at the group uh, The Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. Uh, we are in full swing with the Star Wars marathon going on over there. So if you're looking for a place... Uh, to just discuss all things Star Wars, but in a positive light, definitely join us there. And I'm also on Letterboxd. I am there as Gabriel Green. You can follow me on Twitter at Gabe A. Green, and I am on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. Okay, so I survived. Yay. My voice probably won't thank me for a week, but we did it. I really, really hope I am able to edit out all the coughs and sniffles. Uh, and if a few, uh, if I missed a few, I just apologize for that. So next week, uh, we will be back with the unlucky, the unlikely, and possibly ill-advised sequel, Blade Runner 2049, uh, which is a film that I like a whole lot more. All right. So until next week, we will be back with the sequel. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the darkness near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time like tears in the rain.